Hello and welcome to the virtual journal club activity titled Schizophrenia, Neurotransmission and Receptors to Dopamine and Beyond. This activity is supported in whole or in part by an educational grant from Synovian and Otsuka. I am your host, Dr. Nessa Abidarham. I'm chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health in the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University. And I am the primary author on the publication we're covering today, From Bedside to Bench and Back, a translational approach to studying dopamine dysfunction in schizophrenia. As you go through the document, I will pop up here in your learning stream to offer additional insights and resources. Feel free to use the tabs at the top to take and save notes, pin any content you find useful, and download resources you want to save for later. Now let's get started. You may be very familiar with the symptoms of schizophrenia, but in general, we talk about clusters. Uh, there are the positive symptoms, uh, which include psychosis, hallucinations, paranoid delusions, thought disorder, everything that normally shouldn't be experienced by someone that is out of the ordinary and not explained by the culture. Then we have negative symptoms, which are the social withdrawal, poverty in speech, poverty in thought. And then we have cognitive uh, deficits, and they involve every domain of cognition from executive function to working memory to social interactions, social cognitive disturbances. So pretty much a global deficit in cognition that involve many functional domains. There are also symptoms that have to do with psychomotor dysfunction, motor symptoms that are even observed before onset of the illness as described by ML Kreplin. And these have to do with stereotypies, tetonia, changes in psychomotor behavior that are part of the illness and not explainable by any side effects of medications. What is striking about the fact that there are positive symptoms, negative symptoms, cognitive dysfunction, motor symptoms, is the fact that this suggests that many systems in the brain that underlie all these functional domains are affected, which suggests that schizophrenia is really a global brain disease affecting many systems. So that means that different brain regions or connections between different brain regions uh, are affected. It's not one single lesion. Or if it is one single lesion, it must be very central to many uh, functions, or it must be at the, the kind of the cross point of connections between many brain regions. This in the beginning suggested to us that one neurotransmitter system that is involved in all these functions could be involved uh, and explain the, the variety of symptoms we see. And, and that was what dopamine. The dopamine neurotransmitter is present in cells in the base of the brain, the midbrain, and from there projects into terminal fields. There is a projection to the cortex. This is the mesocortical projection, and that underlies prefrontal cognition. So things like executive function, working memory depend on dopamine tone in the prefrontal cortex. There's a projection to the striatum but actually multiple sub-projection to the striatums because the striatum is divided in multiple subsections that have different functions. So the more ventral part of the striatum, which is the ventral striatum, has a limbic function. Limbic meaning subserving emotional type of behavior, pleasure, reward, emotionality. The midsection of the striatum 
has more to do with cognition, thinking, remembering, deciding, executing. And then the very dorsal part of the striatum has to do with sensory motor function, as perception, sensory perception and movement. And, and dopamine projects to the striatum to these three different subsections. Part that projects to the cortex also projects to the ventral striatum. We call this mesocortical and mesolympic. They're coming from the VTA, ventral tegmental area within the midbrain. While next to the VTA is the substantia nigra, which from there dopamine projects to the midsection and the dorsal section of the striatum. There are also projections to other parts of the brain uh, from uh, the substantia nigra and there is a small projections from the hypothalamus to the pituitary gland where do dopamine controls prolactin release. The projection from the substantia nigra to the striatum, to the associative and to the sensory motor is the nigrostriatal sensory motor pathway and nigrostriatal associative pathway. And in those pathways, dopamine is modulating functions within the striatum that have to do again with cognition and with a sensory motor function. Because of the type of symptoms that are involved in schizophrenia and because of the variety of functions that dopamine has in the brain, it seemed to be a normal target to look at in schizophrenia. In addition, we knew that all antipsychotics interact with dopamine and it's almost a necessary function for an antipsychotic to be successful. There may be now the emergence of few exceptions the miscarinic system may be the first exception actually to this rule, but up until today, besides the miscarinic one, there isn't really an exception to the rule that all antipsychotics have D2 dopaminergic blocking functions. Now, let me uh, turn to, to tell you uh, why it's been a challenge uh, to examine what's going on in mental illness and schizophrenia, why it's been so challenging. When one look at the brain of a patient with schizophrenia, there is nothing that really anatomically is extremely abnormal that we can pinpoint besides some shrinkage of the gray matter and some expansion of the ventricles, the empty spaces that are filled with CSF. Uh, but these are not pathognomonic. They're seen in many other conditions and they really don't tell us much about what is the problem that is at the origin of this shrinkage or the expansion of the ventricles. To understand really what is wrong, we need to get at the cells and at the synapses, the neurons, the functional connections between them to really understand what is abnormal. And that is difficult to do because it is difficult to get to the brain while it's functioning. So in a way, we rely on imaging of humans that are alive, that are uh, functioning so that we can put together the behavior, the function with the images, whatever the images are that we're acquiring, whether it's molecular imaging, functional imaging, etc. But all of that is great and gives us some information, but it's not sufficient because the imaging that we have doesn't have the resolution that we need to be able to get information about the cellular uh, events, the synaptic events that are abnormal. We get some information, but it's not sufficient to pinpoint really the cause of the illness. Because of that, we have to go to multiple techniques and put those together to be able to derive some information. So one of those techniques is to do uh, modeling of disease traits or disease biology, anything that we think is important to study. 
we model that in an animal model. For example, if you have a gene that you suspect is important because it confers vulnerability to the illness, taking that gene and uh, creating a mouse model that expresses that gene in abnormal ways or whatever allows you to look at the effects of that gene in a, a living organism, in a system. That would be a transgenic mouse model to look at the effects of that particular gene. You could also do a different approach, which is to take an abnormality that is seen in patients with schizophrenia and reproduce that in a mouse to create a mouse model that gives you information about the effects of this abnormality that is seen in patients. What does it do in an organism? And can we learn anything from that? So what we did is we took information that we had gathered from patients with schizophrenia about their dopamine system and used that to create a mouse model. That process is called translation. So we learned about one biological issue, striatal dopamine D2 overstimulation, and we tried to replicate this in a mouse so that we can look at the effects of an excess in D2 stimulation on a living organism. That was the translation. What we learned from that mouse model, we made observations that we expected and observations that we did not expect that were novel. We took those and then tried to see if in a patient, these are actually present. These observations that we had no clue would exist, are they also observable in patients? This is what's called back translation. So you go from the bedside, you make an observation, take it to mouse model, and from the mouse model, go back to the bedside. So bench to bedside and back. So now let me tell you about that observation we made in patients that we took to the mouse and created the mouse model. The observation was about dopamine and the striatum. Multiple studies from multiple labs and ours included showed that there is an excess dopamine in the part of the striatum that has to do with cognition. So the midsection of the striatum, the associative striatum, and to some extent, the sensory motor striatum. These were the parts of the striatum where we could measure using positron emission tomography, molecular imaging techniques, excess dopamine stimulation. Not so much the ventral striatum, the limbic striatum, the one that has to do with reward and, and emotions. And I was by itself a surprise, but putting that aside, we learned that the midsection and dorsal part of the striatum has excess dopamine. And also we learned that the impact of this excess dopamine is mostly affecting behavior via the D2 receptors, more so than the D1 receptors, so that the D2 are more relevant to the psychosis, to the symptoms, and also to their treatment. And the way we learned that was by combining imaging studies, looking at dopamine parameters uh, in the striatum, with symptoms rating of patients who are doing the studies, and also the response of these patients to treatments we gave them, and those treatments decreased D2 stimulation. And by putting all this together, we understood that actually there is an excess D2 stimulation in the seriatum in patients with schizophrenia that is causing psychosis. And if they have this problem, the excess D2 stimulation and the presence of psychosis, and we give them D2 blockers, D2 functional antagonists, then we lower their psychosis. All these studies are published. They're referenced in the paper here. 
if patients have psychosis, but their dopamine system is normal, they tend to be not responsive to antipsychotics. They're treatment resistant. Based on this observation and this ratum, we created a mouse that had an excess D2 expression in the dorsal striatum. It's not because we thought there is more D2 expression in the patients. It was just a way of creating a state where D2 is overstimulated. So if you increase their numbers, you're going to have more of a D2 stimulation. That was just like the method by which we could create a state that is similar to what we're observing in the patients. When I say we, it was our collaborators or our basic scientists, a reference in the paper. So they created a transgenic mouse model that had an increase in D2 expression and the dorsal striatum. The, the increase was not huge. It was only by 15%. It was mostly in the dorsal striatum because this is what was observed in patients. But it was done for a period of few weeks early on during development when the mouse was very young. And then the, the gene was turned off. So this basically was replicating uh, or inducing in this mouse a state where the mouse has excess D2 stimulation and this part of the striatum, the dorsal striatum, for a few weeks when the brain is forming, when the circuitry is getting together, where everything is being refined on the way to having an adult brain. Those two weeks of excess D2 stimulation, it turns out, had profound effects on this mouse's behavior and brain chemistry. In terms of behavior, this mouse exhibited deficits similar to what is seen in patients with schizophrenia. So reward type of dysfunction, working memory, cognitive prefrontal type of cognitive dysfunction, and some of them were not reversible even after the gene was turned off. So it was very surprising because it meant that if someone has an abnormality in dopamine and the striatum, very limited to the striatum, early on during development for a few weeks, it could actually have long-lasting effects on behavior even when this abnormality is removed. In addition, when looking at the brain very carefully, it was discovered that there were off-site, meaning outside of the striatum, effects on the chemistry and on the structure, the circuitry. So, for example, there was abnormal excess of projections within the basal ganglia from the striatum to the pallidum that biased the system from the direct go pathway to the indirect no-go pathway. Let me explain this for a minute. So in our basal ganglia, the circuitry works such that we have kind of two systems, one that allows us to approach, to take on a behavior, and one that allows us to avoid. We call this the break system. And our behavior is always a balance between this go approach and no-go uh, avoidance behavior. And what happened in this mouse is that there were projections going from the go to the no-go, so shifting the balance, making the balance abnormal between these two systems. And you can see the details in the paper. But that could be like at the base of abnormalities and processing reward-making decisions about ambivalence. Ambivalence is like the essence of this kind of confusion of go and no-go. So this is something that was discovered in the mouse, this abnormality in the structural connections between these systems. And that is a novel observation we have in the mouse that then we can take back and look at 
And patients, do they actually have these abnormal B connections between these small subnuclei suppers of the basal ganglia? And that is a study we're actually doing now. Another discovery we have in the mouse that we didn't expect is that there were abnormalities in cortical dopamine and cortical GABAergic function. In addition, there were abnormalities in the level of firing of dopamine projections from the VTA to other parts of the brain that was somehow related to a decrease in the expression of NMDA receptors on these dopamine cells. So NMDA receptors are a subtype of receptors of glutamate receptors that are excitatory. So they can make the, the neurons on which they are expressed kind of fire more. So a decrease in NMDA would lower the firing of those cells, and that could explain a decrease in function in the mesolimbic and mesocortical projections. That is, again, something that we learned in the mouse that we can check whether it's present in humans. So that's, again, an aspect of back translation that is the benefit of having these mouse models. The dopaminergic observations we had in patients and nosraitum led us to collaborate to build the mouse model where we induced an increase in D2 stimulation and made observations that confirmed some of what we expected to see, but also gave us novel observations. But the big story of this was the fundamental discovery that the dopamine abnormality could actually be an initial event, something that happens early on in life that has by itself profound repercussions on circuitry and behavior in the developing brain that affects other functions. So it could be an initial event that produces many other dysfunctions. It's always thought in a way the opposite. People saying there are abnormalities in the brain and GABA and glutamate and other systems that somehow trickle down to induce a dopamine dysfunction in the striatum and that causes psychosis. And that could be the case. Most likely there are cases like that where there are abnormalities in multiple systems that are supposed to regulate dopamine and something goes wrong. And then you have this, the manifestations of these abnormalities in other system. And then at one point, you have the dopamine dysregulation and the psychosis that comes with it. But what this mouse model showed us is that in some cases, it may be the other way around. It may be that you have initially an abnormality in dopamine in a region as restricted as the striatum for whatever reason, and we don't know yet what and how. It could be that some environmental stress in utero, drug effect, toxicity, inflammation, infection, that produces a state of excess dopamine, that produces an excess D2 stimulation that somehow doesn't turn off or doesn't get quieted. And that has repercussions on how the circuitry evolves and on other systems that will go beyond into adulthood and will co cause manifestations that are consistent with what we see in schizophrenia. So this is like the potential proof of concept that it is not necessary that abnormalities in dopamine are only a, a last event due to a cascade of other events that have to do with other systems. It could be that dopamine is an initial event that leads to these other dysfunctions. The other thing I wanted to share with you is that is also part of this paper is we talked about dopamine in Israel, but as we mentioned earlier, dopamine is projecting to many parts of the brain and has important functions, critical 
and many other parts of the brain. In particular, the cortex, it observes cognition. And so we were very interested in looking at dopamine and the cortex to see whether, is it normal, is it below normal? Could that explain why patients have difficulty with cognition and why they have negative symptoms? And that was a study that we undertook later. The striatal studies were easier to do. But then at one point when we were able to do the study in the cortex, what we were surprised to find is a decrease in dopamine in the cortex, so a deficit in this mesocortical projection. But also we discovered that there is a deficit actually everywhere outside of the striatum. Almost all regions that we could measure had low dopamine release. So that creates this kind of paradox where there is excess dopamine and initiative striatum and a sensory motor striatum to some extent but then low dopamine everywhere else. And the big question is, how is it that you could have these two opposite phenomena or a, a dysregulation that's not necessarily in the same direction? And is this present in the same patient? Does the same patient have both abnormalities or these could be segregated groups of patients? Because we haven't really done the study of striatum and cortical dopamine in the same cohorts. These were separate cohorts. So many more questions to try to understand, to get answers to in terms of are these abnormalities coexistent? Is one leading to another or are they just separate groups of these abnormalities? But what we have learned is that when we observe something in patients, we could use multiple type of systems to try to understand by recreating in those other systems what are the uh, consequences on behavior and circuitry, and that's what we learned from the study that I've summarized here. Another important impact of the kind of work that I've discussed here to try to zoom in on cellular abnormalities is that really this is the only way to find new therapeutic targets. It's also a way to find biomarkers, but let's not get into that. I think what's important here is what have we learned? The fact, for example, that dopamine is low in the cortex and in other uh, areas of the brain, that immediately explains why the two drugs that are usually um, either full antagonists or partial antagonists aren't going to necessarily help with symptoms of cognitive deficits or negative symptoms that are due to low dopamine stimulation of dopaminergic receptors in the cortex, especially the D1 receptor. Because of that, one immediate conclusion from that discovery was that D1 agonist should be tried in patients with schizophrenia to see if they would be beneficial for cognition by remediating or improving this cortical deficit that is resulting in a high stimulation of D1 receptors in the cortex, which are critical for cognition. And we have trials going on at this, at this point to help address this. Another kind of target discovery is thinking about how is it that we could have a deficit in dopamine everywhere in the brain, but this excess in the striatum. What is going on in the striatum that could explain an excess in dopamine release? One uh, idea is that there could be local factors modulating dopamine in the striatum that could be dysregulated, leading to a local increase in dopamine release in the striatum. And one of the suspects is the cholinergic system. And there's a lot of interest now in the cholinergic system. And they modulate dopamine in multiple very complicated ways. Many of the muscarinic receptors are involved, and now scientists are looking at allosteric modulators, agonists of these muscarinic receptors that have effects in the striatum. 
with the idea that they could regulate dopamine dysfunction. There are other targets in the cortex that could also potentially alleviate the dysfunctions in the cortex. These are, for example, the muscarinic M1 agonists. But having some information and insight about the cellular pathology and putting this together with the understanding from the neuroscience field as to what systems interact with each other, what systems regulate each other, and find details like which receptor is on which cell regulating which other type of cell can open the door to many potential targets that one can explore. And this would be the ultimate benefit of studying the brain in this kind of detail and using other systems to gain information. This concludes the virtual journal club activities, schizophrenia, neurotransmission, and receptor to dopamine and beyond. Thank you for your participation. I hope you enjoyed it. To receive continuing education credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation online. To view additional educational activities for healthcare professionals, please visit meoutfitters.com. Again, thank you for joining and providing the best of care for your patients. Take care.